Welcome back to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Now that most of the teams in the NBA are approaching the 10 games played mark, we're going to kick off season three of the Deep Dives podcast by bringing back our last guest from season two, although in a very different capacity. So I'm here with Tyler Metcalf today to talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm great, Nick. Good to be back on. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. It's a fun early season for Kings fans for the first time in recent memory slash pretty much the first time this decade. So, you know, it's always a good place to be in, even though they just got absolutely waxed by the Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah, baby steps, though, baby steps. Baby steps, indeed, for (laughs) any sort of steps are positive for Kings fans at this point. But let's talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves. Now, we will talk in depth about the biggest part of their offseason and preseason and early season. So don't worry on that front. We will get plenty of that kind of discussion in there. But I wanted to start out by talking about the five-year, $190 million extension that Carl Anthony Towns signed this offseason. When you first saw that news, what were your thoughts on the deal? My initial thought was, thank God he finally signed it, because there was a lot of, with all this off-season drama, there was a lot of speculation on, you know, oh, is he actually going to sign it? Is he going to want to stay here? But, you know, when you get offered that much money, it's pretty hard to turn it down. And say what you want about, you know, him being a soft player or, you know, his defensive struggles, but the guy is still arguably the most talented big man in the league um, from an offensive standpoint, and he's still only 22. So I I had absolutely no issues with them doing it. I was excited to see him sign it, and um, it it just was a move that made all the sense in the world. It's really interesting for me to look at Carl Anthony Towns because I see a lot of the best things in DeMarcus Cousins that made him fun to watch as a fan without a lot of the arguing and discussions with refs that Cousins had that tended to be a bit of a problem with him as the technical fouls started to mount. I don't think it's even that much of a hot take to say that in terms of pure talent on the offensive end of the floor, Carl Anthony Towns might be the most talented big man not only in basketball right now, but in the history of the game. I mean, he shot 50-40-85 in his second year and put up 25 points a game. And this is him. He just will turn 23 this season. And he's already put up multiple years of historic offensive numbers. He is a better shooter from the five spot than really anybody I can think of that's had significant volume, you know, maybe someone like Memo O'Core was a better shooter, but that was really most of what he did as a center. Carl Anthony Towns has basically every offensive skill you can hope for in a big man other than really solid passing out of the post. And the issue with him really is just going to be the same issue that he's had his first years in the league, which is that Center is not the most offensively important position, but I think it is the most defensively important position. So even with his incredible offensive talent, there is still a little bit of a holdback on if he can even be consistently average on the defensive end. Because if he can be consistently average on the defensive end, I think he'll make many, many all-NBA teams and be a pretty clear all-of-banner by the time his career is done. 
Yeah, and you touched on his offensive game, and he's an incredible shooter. He's over 40% from three on over five attempts a game again this year. He's he's just a freak when it comes to that end of the floor. He has great footwork in the paint and is really patient and has a good touch around the rim. So he can really just, he's one of the rare, you know, seven plus footers who can score from anywhere on the floor. And the issue with his defense is almost in the past is that he's been like really disengaged. And at least this year, you know, he looks like he's trying a lot more and he's gotten better with his weak side block rotations he's averaging over two blocks a game right now um and he's he's kind of toned it down where he would just try and come out of nowhere and block the ball and just miss badly which would give his guy you know just an an easy put back so he's avoided that for a good amount but and he is still he's not even 23 and he just needs to continue to get stronger. And that once he's able to do that and build up that lower body strength, he'll he'll be able to improve his rebounding. He'll be able to hold his own in the post more. And um, a, a common thing on offense that you see when watching him when he tries to post up is that he struggles to establish that low post position. So he gets kind of pushed out and is receiving the ball for his post up, you know, 15 feet away from the rim. So once he continues to build that lower body strength, I think it'll just continue to take his games to new heights. Improving his lower body strength is, I think, critical, as you said. But there's one other important factor in his offense, which you sort of touched on a bit when talking about his defense. He was fifth on the team in usage rate last year. When you're that good of an offensive big, that's almost unacceptable. And during that one game where the team just kept feeding him the ball against the Hawks, he put up 56 points. Yeah. But him not leading the team in shots, basically anytime I see that, it's just baffling to me. Yeah, and a lot of that, I think, comes down to the Jimmy Butler issues that we'll get to later. The uh, when, when Ben Wallace was in the league um, and he when he first went to Chicago, he, he was struggling a lot because he – because in Detroit, the way they got him engaged was the first possession of every game. They got him the ball, and you know that was his opportunity to score. It didn't matter if it was a good shot or not. They felt that if they were able to get him involved right away, he would be engaged the entire game. He didn't do that, or Chicago didn't do that when he first got there. He was struggling, not really involved. And that's something that I'm kind of seeing out of towns, too, is that once they get him involved early, He's engaged for the entire game. Let's talk quickly about the rookies before we move on to looking at the early season results from the Timberwolves. Something that I think has been surprising to me is that Josh Okoge has already played a much bigger role than Keita Bates-Diop. I thought that Okoge was going to be a lot more of a project type player, and he's definitely looked raw at times. But it is surprising to me that Tom Thibodeau is opting to play the admittedly much more inexperienced rookie over someone in Bates Diop who's already had a long college career and definitely seems like the kind of player who, at least on the defensive end, has the tools and defensive IQ to be a mainstay in a Tom Thibodeau rotation. Yeah, so Okogi's been the biggest beneficiary of this whole Butler fiasco and him taking games off and Wiggins missing a, a handful of games with that thigh injury. Um, so Thibodeau really was kind of forced to play Okogi because he didn't have anyone else to play. 
and he's been so much fun to watch. And granted, he's his outside shooting needs a lot of work, but you know we're seeing him be able to knock down some corner threes. He's definitely not afraid to shoot it, and he plays harder than you know than almost the entire league. Uh, he's very good defensively. He works his butt off. He's a great rebounder. He kind of reminds me of what I feel like the expectations for Andrew Wiggins were coming in when Wiggins came out, that he was going to be a really high energy defender and his offensive game would kind of be a project. And, you know, he's obviously turned out to be completely different than what many expected from him. But that's the sense I'm kind of getting from Okogi where he's he's confident in what he can do. He works his butt off on both ends of the floor. And he, he seems like a guy Thibodeau would love because of how hard he plays. Let's now move on to looking at the early season. So as of the time of recording this podcast, the Timberwolves have not yet played their 10th game against the Portland Trailblazers. So just talking about the first nine games, uh, we've talked a bit about the positives of Carl Anthony Towns, but I think it's only fair now that we look at the fact that he has not exactly had a brilliant start to the season outside of his strong start from beyond the arc. Yeah, it's been slow going. Um, And the games where Butler hasn't played, he's looked a lot better. He looks like he enjoys playing more. Um, You know, when he, he, when they get him involved early, he's more engaged on both ends, but his defense has continued to struggle. Um, you know, he, he goes through bursts of where he looks really good and then, you know, has a nice block at the rim and gets all pumped up. And then almost it feels like he thinks that, oh, well, that was a good series for me. I can kind of take these next five off. So if he's able to turn that around, um, you know, I, I think that'd be that'd be crucial. But it's it's pretty evident that he just does not enjoy playing with Butler. And when Butler's not out there, um Towns is just enjoying basketball a heck of a lot more. The other starting big man for the Minnesota Timberwolves, Taj Gibson, has had a pretty solid start to the year overall, and it certainly seems like he has been, both in terms of on the court and off the court, much less affected than anybody else by the whole Jimmy Butler saga. Yeah, Taj is just kind of the 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 face of steadiness um, with the team, I and mean, he he works his butt off and and his offensive game is getting better. Um, He's been stretching it out and knocking down some corner threes. And him and Jimmy were pretty close going back to Chicago. So I don't think he really cares too much about it. And he kind of knows what Jimmy's personality is and same with Tibbs. So he just kind of is able to roll with it and knows that his role isn't really affected by any of this. And he just kind of continues to, to play hard and make the right play all the time. Yeah, it always feels like just in general, there are some guys who, you know, put up all the lovely, beautiful little box score numbers and then other guys who don't show up as much in the box score, but clearly have a positive impact on the team when they're out on the floor. And this seems like a bit of an asinine statement, but I always think about it in the context of Brooke Lopez, whose rebounding numbers always looked awful. And so anyone who didn't watch him play on a regular basis would think, how is this seven-footer such a terrible rebounder? But when you watch the games, you realize he is a huge benefit to his team on the glass to the point where 
the Bucks this season were number one in the league in rebounding rate with him on the floor, but 23rd in the league in rebounding rate with him off the floor before they demolished the Sacramento Kings earlier today. And he's so good at boxing out that his team just does much better on the glass whenever he's on the floor, even if his numbers look bad. And it seems like there's a sort of similar thing with, with Taj, especially on the defensive end, where maybe his man might look a little bit better because Taj is so busy helping off on other people's guys. And those are the kinds of players that it's really hard to identify, just sort of looking at it from a broader perspective. But when you watch them more regularly, it sort of seems like those are the kinds of things that you notice if you're looking really closely at the guys who don't really jump out of the box score as much. Yeah, he's definitely one of, the, one of those guys where just looking at the numbers, you'd think that, eh, yeah, he's 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 okay. But when you, when you actually watch the game, you realize all the little things he does to make them better, whether it's making the extra pass to set up the assist or um, and he, he's a, he's actually a very good defender, even out on the perimeter. So he's able to, the way that him and Towns um, are, you know, kind of instructed to defend against a pick and roll is completely different. And when watching them play, play defense, you'll often see Gibson either hedge and force force the ball out of the the ball handler's hand or even just switch out and just take the guy one-on-one um and he's not afraid and he's definitely capable of keeping up with those guys on the wing he's also one of the more efficient players on the team in terms of just not turning the ball over not making mistakes and you know it is really helpful to have the kinds of players out there on the floor as complementary pieces who aren't going to hurt you on those occasions where they do touch the ball so even if the team is objectively better with taj as the fifth option on offense you can at least know that when he does touch the ball as you said he's going to make the right pass he's going to make the right decision and he's not going to waste opportunities when he gets them let's move on from the big men to talking about the wing and guard rotations And I wanted to start out on that front by talking about the point guard position. Jeff Teague has been up and down, to say the least, so far this young season. And something that's kind of always surprised me about the Timberwolves rotation is that despite the fact that I think he fits in really well with the rest of their young pieces, Tyus Jones never seems to get the kind of playing time that I would expect him to. Yeah, I'm not sure why... Tibbs just doesn't feel comfortable giving Tyus, um, you know, more playing time. And he, he's not an elite athlete, so defensively he can kind of struggle to keep up with some guys. But he's a really smart player who he's a lot, he's kind of like the guard version of Taj Gibson, where he's not going to wow you with any of his numbers. But when you watch him, he does all of the little things right. Uh, and he, he rarely forces his own shot. He's very good at, um, getting the ball into their playmaker's hands and then making himself available by just sliding, you know, sliding to the corner for an, for an open kick out three. Um, and defensively, he, he just makes the right rotation. So I would like to see him get more minutes, but it just doesn't seem like Tibbs is willing to give him uh, a bigger, a bigger role. It's also strange because he's the best shooter among their point guards by a pretty significant margin. And, on the one hand, you'd think that that would be something that Tibbs would be interested in having, you know, out there on the floor as someone who can actually shoot the ball from that position. But given that he 
despite all of the good things that Taj Gibson does, the fact that Anthony Tolliver doesn't get more playing time at that position kind of says a lot to me about Tibbs' views on whether three-point shooting across the board is important or whether you can just let Carl Anthony Towns chuck up the vast majority of your threes. Yeah, he's, he's just, he's stubborn to accept, you know, math, essentially. And Tolliver is just a flamethrower, and he's he always has the green light. It's really fun watching or watching that new aspect of of their offense because he's kind of doing what Bielitsa last year was, you know, supposed to do and could have done, and is now doing on the Kings. By the way, yeah, ex- exactly, because the co- their coaches and their system has given them the confidence and the green light to do it, where Tibbs, you know, never did, and I. I'm sure that Tibbs has kind of been hesitant to to do that with Tolliver, but I think it's just Tol- Tolliver's personality where he's like, you know what, I'm a three-point shooter, so I'm going to go out here and fire away, you know, deal with it. Let's talk about Andrew Wiggins. It's interesting to me because, on the one hand, Andrew Wiggins has been one of the most consistent players in basketball over his four-plus-year career. I mean... He's missed three games so far this season, which is already three times as many games as he missed in his first four years in the league. He's played right around 35 minutes a night every season, except this one, his minutes have been down a bit as they brought him back from that injury. But it just doesn't seem like he's changed at all since he entered the league. It doesn't seem like he's added any particular skill that would be helpful. His three-point shooting so far this year has looked good, but... He also started pretty hot last year, and the small sample size sort of gave way to him ending up being what it seems like he is just going to be, you know, someone who shoots 45% from the floor, around 33% from three-point range, around 75% from the line, doesn't do much in terms of rebounding, doesn't pass particularly well, is a poor defender, I would say, despite his incredible physical tools. It mostly just surprises me that he hasn't changed at all. I would have expected that either he would add some skills to his game that would allow him to score better, to contribute more on the defensive end, or teams would figure him out. And it doesn't really feel like either one is happening. It feels like he's added just enough to stay at exactly the level that he's been since he entered the league. And I'm sure that's really frustrating to watch as a Timberwolves fan. Oh, it's really frustrating, especially since I I, I was really high on him coming out of college, just because you look at him, he has, he has the tools. He's just a freak athlete. And that, and that part makes his, you know, 3.7 rebounds a game, like one of the most frustrating things because he should be, you know, an elite rebounder and he should be getting up around six or seven rebounds a game, but he just doesn't have that fire that that intensity to you know go and jump over the big men and you know pull that down where you'll often see a kobe you know fly in and get those rebounds and wiggins just kind of lurks you know out out on the wing and doesn't dive in there um and you, you said is here you touched on his shooting it's it's looked good so far um and he's up to five attempts a game but you know, the last two seasons he started off hot and then it's just fallen off a cliff. So if he's able to keep keep it up consistently, you know, I, I don't expect him to continue to shoot 40% from three, but if he's able to even keep it in the high 30s, I think that's a pretty big improvement. It's And offensively, he just kind of doesn't play to what he's good at almost. He 
he continues to chuck these deep mid-range twos, which, you know, will clank off the rim. And he's an, actually an, a pretty elite post-up player, which is kind of weird. But it, I, w- I would like to see him play off ball more and kind of utilize that post-up game because he's one of the best in the league at both of those things. But I, I just feel like he views himself in a different light and that he should be this elite scorer and primary ball handler when he just isn't. In some ways, he kind of reminds me of the wing version of post-magic Dwight Howard, where it's like, these are three things that if you do those three things really well and really consistently, you can be an all-star player. But instead, you decide that you want to be, in Dwight Howard's case, a post-up machine rather than are pretty much indisputably he would have been the best pick and roll player in the league at his peak if he actually you know tried to do that absolutely and similarly with Wiggins I mean if he could learn how to cut off the ball effectively with Carl Anthony Towns as the hub of that offense and they could develop any sort of cut chemistry with Carl Towns in the post or even the other way around with Wiggins passing out of the post to Towns that could be deadly but instead he would just rather get the ball, take two dribbles, step into a 19-footer, Carmelo Anthony style, and it's unfortunate to watch. And the defensive stuff is, I think, less surprising now than it was his first couple of years in the league because, again, with his physical tools, I just sort of expected, oh, you know, he's going to be an absolute monster on that end of the floor. It doesn't seem like he's got the right kind of intuitive knowledge of defense. And maybe that's just because, again, he's still he's still only 23 years old. You know, defense is the last skill that tends to develop for pretty much any NBA player. But I'm just more surprised that he didn't have a more significant season last year because his third year in the league, you know, he looked like he might be hitting the point where he could really break out that next year. You know, his scoring numbers were up. He was getting close to 25 points a game. And instead of last year being his breakout season, he regressed pretty noticeably across the board. Yeah. And I know a big part of that was the shots that Butler took away from him. Um, but I, his defense is just frustrating because you you definitely see flashes of it where he, he'll lock down a guy and force a turnover. Um, but then, you know, the very next play, he's just getting burned on a backdoor cut or missed rotation because he just isn't paying attention to what's happening. So I'm, I'm curious if that's just what his personality is and, you know, this is what he's going to be for the next 10 to 12 years in the NBA, or if it's kind of a coaching thing where you get a different personality, you know, teaching him how, how to develop, whether his game could, drastically change and well not drastically even but just evolve and make him a much more efficient and kind of a much better player all right we've been dancing around this for almost 25 minutes now so let's start talking about the article that you released on the first day of the season about the pure chaos in minnesota surrounding the jimmy butler situation so it's certainly been one thing to see from the outside, but what has it been like being a Timberwolves fan looking at 
let's just say the interesting situation that the Jimmy Butler drama has created in Minneapolis. Uh, it's just beyond frustrating on just every single level. Um, I mean, all, all last season, you know, there were rumblings of, oh, Jimmy's not getting along with this guy and Jimmy's frustrated by this guy. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, everyone's kind of known that Jimmy hasn't been the most easy guy to get along with, you know, going all the way back to his college days in Marquette. So it's like, well, all right, whatever. Jimmy's, you know, a polarizing personality, so be it, whatever. And then all summer, the trade talk kept brewing. And then it just, by the time that it was official that he asked for a trade, it, it just wasn't surprising. And, you know, it's players can ask for trades and, you know, want to get their money and all that, fine. But the most irritating part about all of it is just his, is just the way he's, he keeps preaching how all he wants to do is win and all he wants is honesty. And neither of those things are, you know, are what his actions represent. He inform or he says he demanded a trade um, two weeks before the season started. Okay, that's not useful. He says that all he wanted wants to do is win. Well, he requested a trade to the Nets, the Knicks, and the Clippers. None of those teams have done much winning, essentially ever. He he says he wants, or and then going back to the um, to all he wants to do is win. The biggest thing was that he's frustrated that he hasn't gotten paid, especially after seeing those Wiggins and Towns contracts and he wanted them the Timberwolves to offer him the 150 million dollar contract but to do so they would have had to gut their roster and so they wouldn't have had been able to sign Teague they wouldn't have been able to sign Gibson they wouldn't they would essentially have to trade Jang and and or Wiggins to make that money available for him which doing all of that immediately makes the team worse you know whatever you think of those players not having them on the roster so you can give Jimmy all that money makes the team worse. And the entire time he's been going through this, it's been one of the most, I think, unprofessional displays from a top player we've seen in quite some time. So I just want to start out, first of all, by saying, while I do agree with everything you've said about Butler being honestly shockingly unprofessional throughout this process, he did say that he initially requested the trade shortly after the postseason ended last year, and Thibodeau just sort of didn't do anything all summer. The part of the situation that has surprised me the most is that it seems like the biggest discord in terms of inter-teammate interactions has been between Butler and Carl Anthony Towns. And that surprises me because if I'm Jimmy Butler and I hear the story of Glenn Taylor basically going up to Andrew Wiggins and saying, do you promise you're going to work harder if I give you the five-year $150 million contract and then just giving it to him? Yeah, that was a joke. That was ludicrous. And this is coming from a fan of the team that used to be owned by the Maloof brothers. <laughs> like That was just ludicrous ownership incompetence that's really pretty difficult to forgive. So if basically Jimmy Butler came out and said, Look, you gave Andrew Wiggins that ridiculous contract when he's never proven anything in his career other than that he can be the poor man's version of Carmelo Anthony. And I came to this team and 
when I played, we were on pace for the third seed and the third best record in the West. And despite the fact that the team did much worse when I sat, we still made the playoffs for the first time in almost 15 years. And now all of a sudden you don't have enough money to pay me, but you had enough money to give Andrew Wiggins that contract. Like if that were the perspective that he was coming at it from, I still think he could have handled it better from a professionalism standpoint, but I would have a lot more sympathy for his case if it wasn't abundantly clear that the real point of disagreement is between Butler and Towns, because if either of those two want to win, they should have figured it out between the two of them. And, you know, if Andrew Wiggins doesn't like it and his brother continues to post hallelujah on Instagram when he found out that Butler (laughs) requested the trade, you know, okay. Like that perspective, I understand it from. What I don't understand is saying, all I want to do is win. I want to win. I want to be a winner. And I want to get paid the amount of money I deserve. Great. Why wouldn't you want to work it out with someone who could be the best player in basketball in five years? And even if he isn't, is going to be a staple of the all NBA teams for the next decade. Like if you didn't work it out with Andrew Wiggins as Jimmy Butler, you know, if you didn't work it out with the guy who is sort of at the same position as you, but doesn't really take advantage of all his gifts. And Butler himself said that, like Andrew Wiggins has the most natural talent on this team, but I work the hardest. Like I can understand him not working it out with Andrew Wiggins, but him going through all of what he's gone through, waving the towel in front of the bench when the Timberwolves were about to lose. That was a joke. Like that's just unnecessary especially after you've very clearly made your point with the practice situation and the interview immediately after the practice situation. And granted, you know, he requested the trade. Sure. You know, I think that it's ridiculous in almost any situation to sign with the owners over the players, but ultimately you did write your name on that contract. And even if you want to be, traded and you didn't agree to be traded to the Timberwolves in the first place because you weren't traded there out of a no trade clause, you know, you are still under contract for that team. And if making a public case of it clearly has done nothing to move the organization's stance on whether or not they're trading you, you know, there's a difference between I wish to be traded. I publicly stated my case. I've tried to help work this out and I still want to be traded and I'm letting you know I'm leaving in the off season so you don't want to lose me for nothing. There's a difference between that and waving the towel along with the rest of the Warriors fans while your team is losing and you're sitting on the bench. Yeah, I 100% agree with all of that. Um, And just to be clear, Jimmy's unprofessionalism or the unprofessionalism hasn't been isolated to just Jimmy. And Glenn Taylor is one of the is quietly one of the league's worst owners. Just you know, listen to any comments from Kevin Garnett about Glenn Taylor, and you'll you'll realize how poorly run this whole organization has been. You know, since they came into the league with him, and Thibodeau's just been awful as well. I mean, he's just so stubbornly fixed with this old school mentality that. I agree with him. Yeah, he, Jimmy signed a contract, but at the same time, the guy's clearly going to be a cancer in the locker room if you don't move him. And he's going to be all about him and just create all these sideshows like he did at that practice where he's cussing out the entire front office and cussing out players and then has an immediate interview with ESPN. So move the guy. Like, I get that you don't want to rebuild, but it's just a joke with the way that Thibodeau's handled it. And, you know, 
with the the trade demands that he's or the expectations he's setting where I think Philly called just for you know preliminary talks and they made just you know an initial offer and Thibodeau responded with yeah throw in a first and Ben Simmons and then we'll talk it's like come on man like you're not even taking any of this seriously or even trying to do your job and just it spills and he just loves the confrontation so much where it honestly would not surprise me if we went this entire season if Thibodeau was not fired or if by the end of the year Thibodeau is not fired that Jimmy Butler is still on the team because Thibodeau just loves this stuff he loves the intensity and the passion and all that nonsense that he keeps calling it and he thinks it's good for the team when really it's just kind of destroying their chemistry and destroying the confidence and development of one of the most talented young guys in the league. And on that cheerful and optimistic note, let's <laughs> move into looking at the outlook for the rest of the season. And obviously the key point for the outlook for the rest of the season is one that you just touched on, namely how much longer does Jimmy Butler remain a member of the Minnesota Timberwolves? Now his recent quote unquote precautionary rest which is his excuse for sitting out today's game against the Portland Trailblazers. According to Shams Sharania, that is part of a six-week plan for Jimmy to try and get his way out of Minnesota. That makes it sound to me like he's waiting for the December 15th deadline, whereupon players that were signed in this past free agency can be traded, which makes me wonder which contracts the Timberwolves are looking at as contracts that were signed this past offseason that might be contracts that they can potentially move in a Jimmy Butler trade. Because given that the six-week announcement comes within six weeks of that December 15th deadline, it certainly makes it seem to me that there is some trade that they're targeting as a last resort trade that could be consummated on December 15th. And then I guess the six-week lead-up to that is just can they get a deal that they like better during that time. It's also interesting to me that they've basically decided, yeah, we're just going to punt the first six weeks of the season until we can get Jimmy Butler traded for something. Yeah. So once that October 31st deadline with the um, Marquise Chris and Brandon Knight, once that passed um, with Houston, um, I was kind of waiting on that one. And then once that passed, it, it became pretty clear that they're targeting that December date, but you know, I'm not really sure who else outside of like the Lakers would have those, you know, one year contracts that they just signed um, that that would be relevant to that deadline. And from everything I hear, it doesn't sound like Jimmy wants to play with LeBron. And I don't really think that LeBron wants to play with Jimmy. So and God, I can't even imagine bringing in like Rondo and Lance Stevenson or JaVel McGee into this roster and how much of a nightmare that would be. Um, so I, I'm assuming that they are waiting for that deadline, but you know, I just, at this point with the ineptitude that's been surrounded, I, I just have no expectations and I'll just believe whatever trade or non-trade happens once I actually see it. I'm also starting to think that the reported offer of four first-round picks from the Rockets for Jimmy Butler was a bit of a smokescreen, because if that deal was actually on the table and Tom Thibodeau did not accept it, I think that's like immediate grounds for firing, because my first reaction when I saw that trade was, 
okay, James Harden is going to keep the Rockets afloat for the next half decade, no matter what. But anytime you're putting four first round picks into a trade, my immediate reaction is going to be, is this Billy King all over again? So if that was on the table and Thibodeau didn't take it, I don't think he's taking anything. Yeah. And I, I think that's because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't think he's going to be here after this year. And, you know, that's kind of the sense I'm getting too. So why would he care about a first round pick in 2022? And so from his standpoint, I get it. And it's just, you know, example 8,000 of why coaches should not also be the president of basketball operations because they're two very important jobs that require two very different mindsets. And he just has no idea what he's doing. And it, it just kind of stems to the all the way back up to Glenn Taylor and the, the issue with the organizational leadership there. I couldn't agree more. And the coach GM thing, it's really just a matter of different incentives in the sense that, you know, coach Tom Thibodeau wants to put the best, most experienced veteran team on the floor every night to try and make the playoffs this year and to try and win this game and try and win tomorrow's game. Whereas any GM who's, you know, thinking about the job correctly is looking at it as, okay, this is one potential move that I could make. How is that going to affect the team two years from now? How is that going to affect the team five years from now? But if you're a coach GM in particular, but even more, if you're a coach GM like Tom Thibodeau, when you don't know how much longer you're going to be around, even if that's a very obviously good trade, there's no reason for him not to make that trade other than, him looking at the situation and saying, well, sure, this will help the Minnesota Timberwolves three years down the line, five years down the line, but I'm no longer going to be a member of the Minnesota Timberwolves, which is, again, going back to the ownership point, also why it's shocking to me that Glenn Taylor said he was going to get involved in trade talks and then didn't basically call Tom Thibodeau the morning that that supposed Rockets trade was on the table to say, take this or you're fired right now. But again, maybe that's a sign that trade wasn't on the table or maybe it's just another concerning sign from the top regarding Glenn Taylor. Let's try and talk about something more positive in Timberwolves fandom. <laughs> so basically anything else related to Timberwolves fandom. Um, <laughs> what do you think their chances are of making the playoffs this year? After ending that long drought last season, it'll be interesting to see where this season ends for the team. So I, I don't think they're good. I, the West is just so deep. Um, I I don't expect Houston to continue playing this poorly. You know, I, they're not going to be as good as they were last year, but they're going to be in the playoff hunt. And so there, there's another team that they're going to have to deal with. You know, the Spurs are still really tough. Denver and Utah are better. Um, OKC's loaded, you know, even though they can't shoot and they're, you know, kind of struggling right now. But there are just so many teams that are going to be vying for, you know, the that 45th win to get in that I, I, I think it's going to be really tough for Minnesota to do that. And I, I, I honestly think that the, their chances of making the playoffs are directly tied to when they can get rid of, or when they move on from, from Butler. I think the sooner they, they're able to move on from him surprise, for some reason, I just think it's, they, they look better, they play better. So when he's not there with them, so if they're able to move on from him sooner, even though he's the best player on the team, if they're able to move on from him sooner, I think their chances um, go, go up substantially. 
It sort of feels like the reverse of the Taj Gibson points that we were making earlier in that, you know, Butler's stat lines look incredible and he's clearly one of the 15 best basketball players in the league. But if everybody else, and in particular Carl Towns, just plays much worse when he's out there on the floor, maybe despite his more obvious positive contributions to the team, it might be, as you say, much better for the team overall once the sort of cloud from this whole situation starts to dissipate. The thing about the West playoff picture is that coming into this season, I thought there were only three teams that really just didn't have a chance at all of making the playoffs. And of course, one of those teams started the season six and three and granted just lost to the Bucks, but I don't think anyone was expecting the Kings to be as good as they've been this season, even me. And I'm, you know, a Kings fan who has every reason to try and be optimistic about the squad, but The West is so loaded that really, I think only Dallas, Phoenix, and the Kings are completely out of the running. And then at that point, it's going to be injury luck. It's going to be, you know, how long does it take for, say, the Lakers units to click versus, you know, can Memphis stay afloat if Mike Conley and Mark Gasol get injured again? It's just weird to look at the playoff picture in the West and realize that there are really only three teams that seem totally out of it. And somehow it even feels like the East isn't significantly weaker than it was last season. Not in the sense that any team in the East is going to have a shot against the Warriors in the finals, but more in the sense it feels like there's more balance top to bottom. Whereas last year, it just sort of felt like there were four really good teams in the East and then everybody else. Yeah. the And the biggest issue and with, with the West is that there just isn't that guaranteed win anymore. I'm sure I, I agree that I don't think, you know, Sacramento, Sacramento, Memphis, or Phoenix are going to make the playoffs, but you know, they're still not pushovers and, and, and you can throw Dallas into that list as well. And where in the, you know, the past five years or so, there are at least those bottom teams that were just tanking from day one and were just, clearly really bad and we're just going to be an easy win but and phoenix has booker who could go off for, for 60 any night um conley and gasol are really good players and jaron jackson is looking good luca is a stud in dallas and sacramento's playing at a high pace and looking like a lot of fun and willie cully stein is playing for that new contract so there's just really no pushovers anymore at all in the west and I, it's going to be really tough for Minnesota to get those, you know, quote unquote, easy wins that they should. Speaking of wins, how many wins do you think the Timberwolves will have by the end of the season? And I want to just give it as a range because I think it's really tough to try and pin these things down exactly. But my guess is that the Timberwolves end up with somewhere between 40 and 43 wins and end up as the ninth seed or the 10th seed in the Western Conference. That That's right where I kind of had them pegged. You know, best case scenario, the ball bounces in their direction in a couple close games and they're, you know, up around 45, 46. But I, I think that's kind of wishful thinking. And I, I was, I'm expecting them to be right around that 500 mark. and you know, probably just miss out on the playoffs. This is an obvious statement, but it depends heavily on the kind of trade return they get for Jimmy Butler. If they get the kind of trade return that I think 
Tom Thibodeau would be looking for, namely two or three 30 plus year old veterans. Maybe the team's better this year, but you know, not as not as well positioned for the long run. Whereas if either Thibodeau gets fired or Glenn Taylor ends up being the one to make the trade and he doesn't screw it up as egregiously as I think he might, and they basically unload Jimmy Butler for a bunch of future assets, maybe the team looks worse for that this year, and maybe it takes them another couple of years to return to the playoffs, but that they'll be much better positioned for the long run when that does happen. Yeah, their and their return on Butler is gonna be essential and I, I would much prefer them to see or to see them get, you know, a couple picks and a couple role players, those type of guys who like Taj and Tyus just do all the little things right to make your team better because they they have guys who will fill up the stat sheet with Towns and Wiggins and even Teague. Um, so they don't need those, you know, big playmakers who fill up the box score and score a lot of points and have the ball in their hand all the time because they have three guys that do that already. So if they're and what they're lacking is that cohesiveness and that attention to detail where these role players are able to make the right play and make the team better. So if they're able to get a couple of those guys, um, I, I think that would be just massive for them, even if it does mean, you know, a few less wins this year, but building for something better and on a more realistic timeline with their, uh, with, with their two best players in Townsend Wiggins. So just quickly before we wrap up, do you think even if the Timberwolves do make the playoffs, do you think they have a chance of making it out of the first round? No, I, I would expect a first round sweep. Yeah, I think they could win a game. I mean, sweeps, despite what we saw in the playoffs last year, are not as common as people think they are. Yeah, and if I, I guess that I'm, I'm assuming that they get paired up with, you know, uh, with the Warriors and that that just as we saw the other night doesn't go well. Um, so you're right. Maybe they pull a, pull a game or something, but I, I'm, I'm not expecting any, any sort of impact from them if they, they're able to uh, sneak in. I mean, if Denver or the Spurs stay as hot as they've been through the early season, I could see the Timberwolves taking a game off either of them as a two, seven kind of matchup. Yeah. Yeah. And match the matchup is a big thing here um, that they, they played both those teams pretty well already this year and you know it, it all depends kind of where their mindset is and you know how they're feeling but a game i'd be surprised by anything more than that all right anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up uh no just check out you know the all of our work on hashtag basketball.com i threw up a derrick rose piece uh the other day the morning before his 50 point uh blow up so that was some solid timing on that um also have a podcast the one and done uh podcast coming out soon with hashtag basketball focusing on uh the college college season and really kind of focusing on the draft targets and making sure to help get everyone ready for next year's draft and there are a lot of really fun players to keep an eye on awesome well definitely make sure to check out the one and done podcast and hopefully I will be able to be a guest on that soon. Absolutely. Not to, you know, not to plug for myself before <laughs> you give me an invite or anything, but, you know, kind of always kind of just to plug for myself before I get an official invite, but much appreciated. <laughs> you can find Tyler's work on the hashtag basketball website. 
You can also find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1, where you can get all of his incredibly positive takes about the Jimmy Butler situation. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and you can find my written work on the hashtag basketball website, just came out with an article about De'Aaron Fox, a.k.a. the new cornerstone of the Kings franchise, a.k.a. the shining positive light in the dark after <laughs> the last decade and a half of Kings fandom. And I can say decade and a half because it's now 2018, so 2002 is far enough in the rearview mirror. You can find me via email if you have any suggestions on the podcast, good, negative, indifferent, any suggestions at all, would love to hear from you. Email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.